First John chapter 3, starting near verse 11. John writes, he says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Right, we'll stop right there and we'll look at the, the end of the chapter next week. You know, but it is, again, it's a, uh, it is a repetitive, repetitive message. And John knows that, right? Verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. He knows it's a repetitive thing, but he is driving at the core of Christianity. And that's love. All right? And he's putting a test before us, right? But you think about the, I mean, it, it is the core. But Jesus says to, to his disciples in John's gospel that it is one of the hallmark ways for the world to identify people who are actually Jesus' disciples is love for one another. But love is a difficult thing. Because love, by its very nature, is, is, is very difficult to define. And there always seems to be more and more room for more love, right? For greater expressions of love, more consistent expressions of love. But we have to see that for John it is, you know, the primal, the original, the core, the very heart of Christianity. You know, and he paints again, as he does time and time again, in very stark contrast. Are we reflecting that? That way of love? Or are we following the way of Cain? Are we full of love or are we full of hatred? And so let's look, let's look first at Cain. You know, Cain's an interesting character. You know, one of these days we'll do the beginning of Genesis or all of Genesis and we'll, we'll preach through that. And there's some phenomenal stories in there. But it is a very, uh, it's a powerful story. All right. And so let's, let's actually just flip there and let's read it. Just in case we are not familiar with it. Genesis 4. Starting there in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. I have to stop there. We obviously will read more. On face value, it's a good start, though. I mean, really, you think about Cain. Cain does obviously get a bad rap, being the first murderer, uh, you know, but nonetheless, it is pretty good, right? I mean, you think about this. There's no, not the murder part, amen. That's not good. But, I mean, there's no, no commands given. There's not clear precepts laid down that Cain must make an offering, and yet he does. That's pretty good. 
Now, his offering needs work and there's room for improvement, but nonetheless, it's pretty good. I mean, without covenant, without command, without compulsion, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. Right? Again, like I said, per surface level, look, looks pretty good, uh, but there are some warning signs. You know, even the descriptions between the two offerings, right? Some people, uh, you know, there's various ways to look at it. I mean, Abel's offerings, obviously offering the fat portions from the firstborn. Uh, some people point out the, the idea that Abel's offerings required faith. All right. The beginning of the, the, the birthing season, he's taking some of the best. He has no idea how many he's going to get, how many new lambs he's going to get. But he takes some of what he's given first, and on faith he gives the best to God. Whereas Cain is a farmer, right? Where literally it just says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. So maybe Cain just walked around the yard and picked up some fruits and brought them. Right? A little bit different. Right? One actively selecting the best in order to honor God, and one kind of giving leftovers. Right in the beginning, right? They're, they're, they're in the beginning of the Bible. Uh, there's a very stark warning, this is a side point, about the nature of how giving reveals a great deal about our hearts. About where our hearts are really at. Whether we're a generous people, honoring God as a source of all we have, or whether we're people that, that, that rather spend what we have solely on ourselves. We read on them. Right? The Lord, middle of verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Strong start, pretty poor finish though from Cain. Right? Pretty poor finish. You think about what, what's happening here, right? It quickly goes off track. That how Cain perceives this situation between him and his brother, how he sees it, leads to things stirring in his heart and leads to an action that ends in the death of his brother. Right? how he sees the situation, how he perceives it, then floods his heart with various feelings, various ideas, various attitudes, and then the end result is that of murder. With God himself trying to intervene, that process is not stopped. That's scary. I mean, most of us, I think, would like to think if you had God reasoning with you, don't go down that path. Don't open that door. What's behind that will overtake you. It'll control you. It'll dominate you. And you have to figure this out. Most of us think, man, if God spoke to me, surely I'd listen. But Genesis 1 to 11 is giving us a framework for how to see the world and how to understand ourselves. Right? We are way more stubborn way more easily deceived, way more easily blinded than any of us like to think. We've got to think, you know, again, because in God's eyes, in John's eyes, the Apostle John, in Jesus' eyes, hatred and, and murder are synonymous. None of us, God willing, will hopefully never take anyone's life physically. But man, hatred, it can grow. It can flourish. 
And the people we're most likely to hate are usually only people we love. More often than not, complete strangers can't wound you on a level that someone that you love can. That's why a majority of murders in the world even now are just like this, within the family. I mean, that's a scary stat to think about. You have the preteens in, so we won't delve too deep into it. But you are most likely to be killed by someone you love. It's a scary thought. Right? But telling us something about the nature of mankind. Right? And so with both Cain and, and, and Jesus, both the way of Cain and the way of Jesus, you know, we'll look today at this guy. It begins with the eyes. It begins with how you see things, how you see situations and how you perceive them, and then it floods your heart. And then what comes out of your heart and your actions and your words, that really is where it becomes obvious who you're following. But you got, if you're going to deal with the root, you've got you to start with the eyes. Right? And the eyes and the heart play off each other a fair bit, as we'll talk about here. Because right? uh, you think, okay, we, we read that story. Jump back to First John. Right? And you look at how, how did Cain see that scenario? I mean, we know based on the end of the scenario that Cain saw Abel as the problem. But verse, verse 12, second half of verse 12, you know, John's very clear with us. First John chapter 3, second half of verse 12, uh, because Abel was righteous and he was evil. Right? Because Abel was righteous and Cain was evil. In Cain's eyes, I'm betting that was reversed. Abel was the problem. And if he wasn't around, then I would be okay. That's how Cain would have seen it, right? And this is why Jesus, you know, ha- you know, hammers very strongly in Matthew 7, the plank in the speck principle, right? What do we do? We see other people as, as having a plank and, you know, major problem in their eye, and we see ourselves as having a speck. Well, that's, that's Cain. That's how Cain saw it. Right? And Jesus, you know, appeals to us to reverse that. To rather assume that we're the plank, assume that we're the problem, and that the other person is the speck. And that's, that perspective alone diffuses a vast majority of arguments. And a vast majority of the friction in relationships that often will lead to violence or, you know, hatred or malice or bitterness or envy or jealousy, all those things, a lot of that is snuffed out. And instead of you going down that path, You go down a path of growth. You go down a path of, okay, well, let me look and see what is it about me that that causes irritation in my heart towards that person. How am I seen? What are the parts of my character that maybe I need to grow in? I need to change. I need to learn how to be different so that that doesn't happen. But Cain, of course, doesn't go down that path. He sees it incorrectly. And as he sees his his brother as being the problem in a conflict, jealousy and envy begin to flood his heart. Jealousy and envy. Remember, we studied 1 Samuel, right? One of the scary examples in the Bible is that of of Saul. They sing the song celebrating David and Saul and their victories, and Saul doesn't like it. And it says, from that time on, Saul kept an eye on David. That's not positive. That's not positive. He's not watching David and learning, okay, how can I be more like David? He seems to have, you know, 
Some things figured out that I don't have figured out. How can I grow? How can I imitate? No, no, it's, it's, it's the watchful, critical, tearing him down perspective that, that very quickly will manifest it in him chucking spears at him. Again, we got to think, how do I see? Because it begins with that, guys. How do we see one another? And what do we allow that perspective to then bring into our hearts? Because Cain is a warning to us of how dangerous, how dis, dis, uh, abilitating and deceiving our eyes can be at times. I mean, Cain becomes blind to his own failure and deaf to God's counsel. You know, but it's not just Cain and Saul. If we're honest with ourselves, it's also a struggle in our hearts. I mean, how many of us have secretly had regret when our friends succeed, but we do not? How often do we complain that someone else is honored or, or complimented or highlighted, whereas we are not? How often do we have a hard time in relationships because we constantly compare ourselves and measure ourselves and try to establish our worth in comparison to others? Yep. You know, secretly, I think a vast majority of us are all too happy to hear about some public figure or a leader being caught in sin because it brings them down a notch to our level. We've got to be careful because, again, how do we see things? Because how we see things opens the door to things in our hearts. How we perceive situations, man, it, it opens doors. You know, and for Cain, those doors were not good. Sorry, Eva Ann. upset her. And you think about the strength of what he says here, right? Anyone down there towards the end of that passage, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that mur no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And again, we got to think, okay, well, well, in John's perspective, in Jesus' perspective, it's not just physical murder, it's that hatred. And most of us aren't going to use weapons, and a knife or, you know, sword or a gun or a fist, but we weaponize words. We use more sophisticated weapons, like slander. With our words, we, we stir up divisiveness or discord. We tell other people negative things about people to bring, again, bring them down to knowledge. That's all coming from the same heart. Now, we need to be a people that have deep conviction about what slander is. I mean, that's Satan. John will later you know, outline that in Revelation, which I think is our next midweek series, if you're curious. Come on. Had several requests for that, so yes. we'll do that. And on, I'll die in the process. <laughs> you know, but Revelation 12 talks about how Satan, he is the accuser. He is the slanderer. When you use your words to attack and to wound another person, man, who are you being like? You're being like Satan. It's a scary thing. He is the accuser of our brothers. He's a liar, an accuser before God. You know, we got a people, we gotta be a people that, again, with our eyes, see the world correctly. Because how we see floods our heart with various things. Yeah. And then our actions and our words, man, again, they reveal which path we're on, the way of Cain or the way of Christ. Man, we gotta we got, got nip it at the bud. We gotta go after the beginning, how we see and how our heart interprets. Amen. Mm -hmm. Secondly, 
And in contrast, obviously, the way of Christ. There in verses 16 to 18, he says, this is how we know what love is. Even in John's time, right? Even in John's time, he knew the definitions of the, the world when it comes to love are skewed. They're off. We use love in a lot of different contexts, right? I love ice cream. I love my children. I mean, not really the same qualities, are they? Hopefully not. I hope they're not the same quantity or quality of love for those two things, right? Uh, you know, but, but again, we use, we, it's a word that's very, very heavily used. But John's very careful. No, no, let's make sure we define this word. Because a lot of times how the world defines love is nothing like how God defines love. Right? And how does, how does God define love? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Stark contrast to Cain, right? Cain says to Abel, your life for mine. I'm going to sacrifice you to better my life. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to give up my life to better your life. Again, you can operate on that level without violence. When you slander someone, when you gossip about someone, when you tear them down, when you look at them critically, what are you doing? You're saying, I'm going to tear down your life so I can feel better about my life. That's not the way of love. The way of love says, hey, I'll give up self. I will sacrifice self. The highest form of love, agape love, that gives up self for the good of others. Love is always positive, seeks the other person's good, even when that person might not see that as the good. Right? I mean, speaking the truth in love requires a willingness to love someone and tell them something that may hurt them and may even make them dislike you. But your love for them is greater than your love for yourself. Right? That's, that's love for your neighbor. Again, it's the ultimate contrast. And just like we did with the way of Cain, let's do the same with the way of Christ, the way of love, right? Consider the eyes, the heart, and the actions. You know, it does begin with the eyes as we see, right? John says, you want to know what the way of love is? Look at Jesus. Look at that flesh and blood example. Because we need that. Right? We need that. He says we must follow that, right? We have to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know, and then look what he says there, for, you know, in the next sentence. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? All right, let's break that down. If they see a brother or sister in need, okay, so before pity comes into the heart, you have to see them. And you have to see them properly. Right? And this is difficult. You know, Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian, you know, became very famous in, in, in World War II. You know, he writes about this, this interest, interesting relationship between our eyes and our hearts. And he says, you can see some things only with the eyes of faith. And those things are no less real and true than the things you see with your physical eyes. But the eyes of faith, he says, always have a moral component. They always have a moral component. Meaning how you, you know, what, what you treasure in your heart, what you believe about right or wrong, influences how you see. Influences how you see the world around you and how you see people around you. You know, social psychologists, 
popularized this concept and, and, and called it the bystander effect. You guys ever heard about that? The bystander effect. It became famous uh, in, uh, in 1964 because there was a 28-year-old woman stabbed to death outside of her apartment. Uh, at the time, it was reported that dozens of neighbors failed to step in to assist or to call police. All right. Probably heard other stories like that. More modern one happened actually, in, again, in New York. Fair bit of crime there. Uh, you know, in, in 2010, uh, there was a domestic dispute that happened. Uh, fair bit of people called 911, which is triple zero in America, uh, you know, reported yelling and screaming. Uh, no one intervened beyond that. Uh, but uh, the, the domestic spout, you know, uh, fight eventually spilled out into the street, uh, and a husband was trying to stab his wife. Uh, a homeless guy intervened to save the woman's life. Lost his in the process. He laid dead on the streets of New York for an hour before anyone called 911. And there's CCTV footage of it. And you see people walk by, and some people even like kind of shake them, and then they. And, and, and the outrage that people had, and even the outrage on all your faces, right, tells us that we think, how could they do nothing? Psychologists look at that and they say, that's pretty normal. That's called the bystander effect. We all like to think that we would do something. And from the safety of your couch, when you watch it on CCTV, you like to think, I would step in. But psychologists say a vast majority of us won't. But it's not just psychologists who say that. Long before the 60s or even 2010 in New York, right? Not in New York, but in Israel, Jesus told a parable. Called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what's the point of that parable? It's the bystander effect. Now what can people do? They can see somebody in need, but not see somebody in need. They can physically see a situation and see a clear need, and do nothing. And religious people, they were the butt of that joke, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. Maybe we, you know, have, have more active minds in terms of justifying and rationalizing. Maybe we've got a little bit better at that than the, non, the non-religious world. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week with the whole conscience idea, right? You know, man, Jesus tells the parable saying the same thing. I think the bystander effect is, is, a, is a serious thing. And, you know, I think John is, is driving at this idea that, hey, do we see needs? But again, it's not just do we physically see needs. Man, do we, do we really see needs? I think a lot of times we see behaviors. And we specifically see behaviors that irritate us. <laughs> and we get stuck on that behavior. <laughs> That aspect of someone that frustrates us. But we don't see the person. We don't really see the full package of why, you know, they've done that behavior. The events of their life that have shaped them and man, made something that you view as super easy to do very difficult for them. And again, we see it wrong. And instead of being filled with pity and all, and compassion in our heart. We're filled with frustration. Or even worse, indifference. I mean, frustration, anger, I mean, at least there's some sign of life. Apathy is way more scary. 
to get our eyes checked. There are always needs among us. There's needs within this room. There's needs in your workplace. Needs in your neighborhood. They're all around us. And I think sometimes that's why we switch off. Because we're flooded with it. Man, we can't close off our hearts. And open up our eyes. And the world's hurting. I, was co- I coached Jake's soccer team and the other week, you know, one of the kids, he's usually a little bit spacey, but he was extra spacey that week. You know, in the middle of training, I mean, it's, I don't know, there's 12 eight-year-olds running around kicking each other more than they kick the ball. And the kid starts crying. His parents splitting up. I mean, the seven-year-old. I mean, what capacity does he have? Process that? I mean, how that decision is going to have a ripple effect in that kid's life. I mean, all the social statistics. Say, man, him growing up without dad and mom in the same house, man, he, life is going to be more challenging for him. And it's easy to turn a blind eye to it. Nah, man, that happens every day. Are we moved? Do we see it? Does it stir your heart? I mean, how can we look at one another, John says, and see a need and not have pity? I encourage you, man. Open up your heart. Open up your eyes. See the world with some compassion. But the really tricky part is to not just see it, but do something about it. And that's hard. I tried to do something about that situation that had no luck. Keep trying, but you know what I mean? But we got to do something. And yeah, hey man, you can't force people to do stuff. That would be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> really great. Yeah. And I'm sure we do a great job with that, right? Because we always know what's right. Absolutely. We probably make a bigger mess of that, right? Praise God that people can say no sometimes what we want, right? You know, but nonetheless, we got to be people willing to act, willing to do something, not just talk about it. And he pushes that. Dear children, let us not love with just words or speech, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. Now there's some interesting things that John does here. Look, look closely at, at the transition that occurs in verse 16 and verse 17. In verse 16, it's plural. Brothers and sisters, if you're reading the modern NIV. In verse 17, singular. Because it's a lot easier to feel compassion towards humanity in general than a human in particular. Right? I love everyone in here. (laughs) But do I love Trevor? Oops. Again, I love Trevor. That's why I always pick him up. Plus, it helps him stay away. Right? And we get caught in that. Right? Even John Stott, famous commentator, theologian guy, right? He says it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially the ones that are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive, right? Not just John Stott. C.S. Lewis says almost the same thing. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. 
There's a lot of times how we, you know, we do the same thing with sin, by the way, right? Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh, how specifically? Whoa. <laughs> Leave me alone. Why are you judging me? I thought you'd accepted that premise that you said when you said you're a sinner, right? We like general, but when it becomes specific, it gets harder. Of course, John doesn't just say specific. He says specific and tangible. Tangible. Not just feeling it, but acting on it. Not just seeing it and feeling moved, but man, actually doing something about it. Right? That's harder. I encourage you to think about what, what are ways that I can tangibly love somebody this week? Pray about that. I mean, think about your week, how your week may be different. If every day, before you get into the grind of the daily day, if you stop and you pray, God, help me to see the world as you saw the world. I mean, that was a big deal for the gospel writers. They record 40 some odd times where it says Jesus saw people and felt moved. I mean, he did a lot to meet people's needs. Gave up his life to meet people's spiritual needs. But it began with how he saw them. And pray that prayer. But help me, help me to see the needs around me. Challenge yourself, push yourself this week. Hey, what can I do that is self-sacrificing? Has no benefit to me, but will benefit somebody else in this room. Do something this week. Something that's tangible. Something that's beneficial to anyone other than yourself. Right? It's got to become a habit, a way of life. Because like C.S. Lewis says, right? Loving everybody in general, it's all too often an excuse for loving no one in particular. You know, John, as I said, he often does, puts the way of Christ, puts the way of Cain. Man, polar opposites. Polar opposites. Amen. None of us are going to murder anyone. But I think if we're honest in our hearts, a lot of times we do have hatred. We've got to understand the deeper path. Hey, those very divergent paths begin with seeing the same scenario. Seeing the same situation. Again, the status of our heart, the status of our mind, how we perceive that, we begin to go in a different direction. And whether we act or don't act or how we act, in further direction. Right? But it's so often, as we said, it begins with the eyes, and the eyes are obviously influenced by the heart. Let's be a people that, man, walk like Christ. If we claim to be in him, we must walk as he did. We must live as he did. Jesus, man, man of love. Everyone knows that. Let's be a people of love. Not just loving one another. Not just loving God. Loving the unlovable. Loving our enemies. That's where we begin to have a love that's divine. That's where we begin to have a love that the world stops and takes notice of and sees something radically, radically different. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song. Father, we, uh, you know, we do thank you for, for John's words and you know, how they do, you know, in an uncomfortable way, give us only two options. Father, we know we're people who, who like to sit on the fence, we like to consider ourselves in the middle, Father. We know in reality, God, there is probably a fair bit of more of Cain in our hearts 
than there is Christ. We pray you change us, God. We pray that, that by your spirit, you really you know, prick our consciences this week, God. Help us to see the ways we are seeing things incorrectly. Father, when we see things correctly, God, help our hearts to be moved, filled with pity, filled with compassion. Not hatred, not spite, not bitterness, God. God, we know these things flood us, you know, as John has told us before, flood our hearts with darkness. They blind us. They harden our hearts. They callous our conscience. Father, help us to keep our hearts soft, to guard them and protect them, God, knowing that they are the wellspring of life. Amen. We pray, God, that as we see needs, you know, as we respond in the right way, God, that, that that response translates into tangible action, God. We know that's not always easy, Father. Pray you help us, God. Help us to have opportunity, God. You know, bless us so that we can give to others what you have given to us, God. Help us to see beyond purely the physical and see the spiritual, God. We know that ultimately that is the greatest need of all of mankind. God, we do pray you help us in all these things. Pour out grace and mercy on us as we strive, God, to become more and more like your son. In Christ's name we pray.